This audio recording is presented by New City in downtown Orlando. The scripture reading this morning is from 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 12 through 14. We ask you, brothers and sisters, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you, and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves. And we urge you, brothers and sisters, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. See that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Do not quench the spirit, do not despise prophecies, but test everything, hold fast what is good. Abstain from every form of evil. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. And may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. Good morning. A couple quick notes. First of all, please have no fear. I'm not preaching from that entire passage. Some of you were getting nervous, I think. It's fine. I'm just preaching mainly on 23 and 24, which is at the end. The second note is you may notice this pulpit is much smaller. Let me tell you why. Have you seen the other pulpit, first of all? It's huge. And so while Ted is a very uh, large man and he makes us feel comfortable behind this big pulpit, when I stand behind it, I feel like a child. I feel like this small baby man and it makes me very uncomfortable. And it's hard for me to feel connected. You guys are already far enough away from me because of this stage. So bear with me. I'm still trying to figure out uh, how I feel comfortable communicating with you guys and what I'm used to communicating, uh, the type of room I'm used to communicating in. So that's what we're trying this for. I already like it much better. I feel like a uh, grown person. So I'm glad for that. So this morning, uh, we are taking a break from the See and Display series. (coughs) Excuse me, which means that I get to choose a passage from my city Bible reading. And so those of you who do city Bible reading with us, you know that we just left 1 Thessalonians, and this passage is from the end of 1 Thessalonians. And those verses, chapter 5, 23, and 24, have stuck with me. And I think, I know why they've stuck with me, but I think right now, the reason God is using those verses to speak to me is because over and over and over in my Christian life, and right now is one of these seasons where it's very heightened, I feel the tension between finding my motivation in what is sure about me. Namely, I know that because Jesus died for me, I am holy in God's sight. I know that. But the motivation I find to live in obedience, there's a tension between that. There are times when I live out of a sense of duty and guilt as opposed to thankfulness. And my guess is that you all know what I'm talking about. You've experienced this. And the reason is, I think the Bible is clear that the only thing that will bring about true holy living is to bank on the fact that we are already holy in God's sight. I think the Bible's clear. The only way you and I will consistently find the power to live out of a response to God's love is knowing and being reassured that he loves us because of what Christ has done for us. 
At the end of Thessalonians, Paul has just spent an entire letter encouraging a young church full of young Christians in their faith. They're nervous. They're concerned about a lot of things. One of the things they're most concerned about, and it comes up over and over, is the fact that they are terrified that when Jesus comes back, they will be found wanting. In other words, when Jesus comes back, they won't be ready. He'll find something about them where they will be condemned. And in fact, they're so scared, they're afraid that the people who already died missed out. When Jesus comes back, they're saying, the people that died, what about them? So they're confused. And Paul's writing into a situation where he's assuring them, no, remember, remember, Jesus died for you and you will be found perfect in him. And so the letter is this back and forth between him encouraging them of what they know and speaking into that tension of their fear and lack of motivation. So that's happening back and forth. And where would you end that type of letter? Where would you end that encouraging email to a friend? Where would you end that phone conversation with a friend who's struggling in his walk? He's struggling with motivation. She's struggling with finding her identity in things other than Jesus. Where would you end? Well, Paul ends in this prayer, in this benediction in 23 and 24. And in essence, what Paul is telling them, and it's gonna be on the screen, this is my summary of these verses. Paul is telling them this, the God of peace is powerfully pursuing your holiness. That's where he ends. The God of peace is powerfully pursuing your holiness. Now, every one of these words matters. So I'm gonna dive in to these words. I'm gonna start off talking about God's peace and our holiness, then God's power and our holiness, and then God's pursuit and our holiness. So first, God's peace and our holiness. Have you ever noticed there are certain words when you read the Bible that your mind tells you, okay, you already know what this means, so just move on and get to the things that you don't remember or you don't understand? And you kind of skip over these verses and these words, they become buzzwords, uh, they become throwaway words, For me, the word peace in the Bible is like that. I read it, uh, grace and peace. Sometimes I even sign emails, peace. I mean, um, I know there's richness there, but when I read in the Bible, I just sort of skim over, and that's really unfortunate. And the reason it's unfortunate is because there is so much richness to this word peace in the Bible. The word peace in the New Testament is the word translated from the Old Testament, shalom. Now, shalom is this deep, rich word. In English, for us, oftentimes, when we use the word peace, we're speaking mainly to this aspect of a lack of conflict, right? Outwardly or inwardly. But in fact, the Bible speaks more deeply to peace. Shalom is not only or merely the lack of conflict, but it's the presence of flourishing. So you look at society, A peace or shalom in society would not only be the lack of brokenness or functionality, but shalom in society would be flourishing in society, a beautiful society. Um, A peace of mind would not just be clarity when you see the world, not just lack of confusion, but an actual vision of beauty and purpose in the world every moment of your day. That is shalom. And so when we understand peace that way, we would understand in verse 23 that Paul would start off talking about holiness by saying, now the God of peace, may he sanctify you completely. 
He could have said anything. He could have said the God of power. He could have said the God of light. He could have said the God of mercy. But he said the God of peace. And so when I was studying, I thought, I can't, I can't like, jump over this like I normally do. I have to, I have to focus. What is the connection between uh, peace, God's peace, and our holiness? That was the question that I asked. And I realized that when I understand, when we understand that God's peace is about wholeness, it's about completeness, that that would put us on the right tracks for understanding why God would, or why Paul would remind us that he's the God of peace when he says this. May he sanctify you completely. And may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless. So you realize he's saying the same thing in two different ways, right? So first, let's start with this. He uses the word completely. In Greek, this is called a compound word, which means it's two words together. The first word connotes this idea of wholeness. So you imagine the whole thing. So in the Old Testament, when an altar was built using stones for a sacrifice to make something holy or acceptable to God, if you remember, which I didn't, so I'm not sure why you would, the stone had to be whole. It couldn't be cut in half. Even if it got to the point where it would be really good if you could shave this edge off in order to fit it it in there to build up this pile of rocks, God said, no, it has to be whole. And the reason is, is because anything given to the Lord must be whole. It must be complete. It must be all of that thing. And so the first part of the word of completely is that nature of wholeness. The second part of the word is the Greek word telos or end or goal. And so it's not just about being whole. It's not just about being complete. But it's about being whole and complete in the right direction. So this word is very powerful, complete. So when we talk about the God of peace, the connection between peace which means flourishing, wholeness. And we talk about sanctification or holiness, it must be all of that thing to the right end. And so for us, when we apply this to our sanctification, it makes sense. Because when God wants to make us holy, he wants to make every single part of us holy. Everything. Our emotions, our fears, our ambitions, our joy, our imagination, our longings, our wants, our desires, our bodies, our actions. What do we do with our bodies? And the second thing is this idea, he uses the word right here at the second part of verse 23, may your whole spirit and body and soul be kept blameless. Whole. You know, no commentators think that Paul is saying there's three parts of you, right? There's your, there's your spirit, there's your soul, and there's your body. So Paul's not giving us this detailed anthropology of what does it mean to be a human being. No more than Jesus would have been saying there were four parts of us whenever he says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. In fact, sometimes in the New Testament, uh, the word just is heart. It talks about your heart. Because in the Bible, your heart is the core part of who you are. It's everything. So if I talk about your heart, or if the Bible talks about your heart, it means that your deepest desires, where your motivations lie, it's all of you. Because your heart affects your longings, it affects your desires, and eventually it affects what you do with your body, right? That's why God wants all of you. That's why he wants to make all of you holy. 
And only the God of peace can do that. Only the God who can bring true flourishing, true wholeness, true contentment can do that, which I think is why uh, Paul says he's the God of peace and he wants to make all of you holy. And he says it twice in a row in two different ways so that we won't miss out. You see, the Thessalonians are absolutely terrified that when God comes back, he will find something wrong with them in some part of them to where he will have to declare them judged. On the day of the Lord, when he comes back, how will I know? That's a big fear of theirs. And Paul is reminding them, no, listen, all of you, all of you will be made holy and in fact is made holy by the Lord. And that is why he makes the connection between the God of peace. Because when God brings shalom, he puts back together broken things. When God brings shalom, he knits things together into wholeness and completeness. Wholeness is all the rage right now, isn't it? It's everything. I mean, you have magazines, you have uh, grocery stores, you have Whole Foods, you have uh, Whole Living, you have Whole as a magazine, right? And listen, even I'm into that sort of thing, so I'm not saying that's bad. All I'm saying is that if we lose sight of the fact that the only true wholeness, the only true health, physically, spiritually, emotionally, the only whole vision we can have that's worth having is equated to holiness, You see, it makes sense theologically, it makes sense linguistically, it makes sense etymologically, it makes sense every which way. The word whole and the word holy come from the same root. That's why sometimes you see the word holistic spelled with a W and sometimes you see it spelled with an H. And the reason is, when you look back, it's like a hall of mirrors going back and forth between these words. Because the idea of wholeness is health. The idea of wholeness is a whole spirituality, a whole body, a whole psychology. It's every part of us. It's every part of you. So you see, there's no part of us that God doesn't care about. There's no part of us that won't be made holy. There's no part of us that is out of bounds. Now, if you're like me, you think, oh, great. Wholeness I like. Wholeness speaks to life. Wholeness speaks to, uh, to flourishing. But holiness strikes a different chord in me. I think Holiness sounds like rules. Holiness sounds like lists, right? It does to me. And this is when the rule-keeping part of me starts to come out. You see, I mean, the world is so complex, and it's getting more and more complex with social media, technology. There's information constantly coming at us. And so if there's any time in history, it seems to me that right now, the church or Christians would want to try to reduce holiness to this small list so we can keep it under control. Right? So as soon as I start talking about every part of you and God flourishing in society and all of this stuff and wanting to bring about broken things and bringing them back together, it's like, that's a lot of stuff. I can't keep that all in my mind. And so we want to try to reduce it to this list. And for me, I know that I am treating holiness like it's a list of things to do when my imagination is disengaged. So when, it, when I start to think of holiness as not doing bad things, as opposed to pursuing flourishing for me and for my neighbor, that's when I realize I've turned holiness into a list. It's when I say holiness is more about not doing things as opposed to living this beautiful life empowered by the Holy Spirit. It reminds me of a story I've heard of C.S. Lewis. Um, Walter Hooper is a, as a Lewis scholar. He's still alive Uh, But he was also alive when Lewis was alive, and he met him. And Walter Hooper has said on many occasions that C.S. Lewis 
was the most thoroughly converted man he had ever met in his life. The most thoroughly converted man. And to me, that makes sense because if you're like me, you, you love Narnia. You love what it does to you. Whether it's the books or the movies, you realize when you see it, when you see joy in Narnia, when you see courage, when you see bravery, when you see sacrifice, when you see love, when you see flourishing and hope, you say, yes, that right there, that's what it looks like. That's the life I want to live. That's the way I want to be. That's the person I want to become. That's the impact I want to have on people around me and in my family. I don't want to live for myself only. I want to live for others. I want to live for their flourishing. I see that whenever I see Narnia. I see it so clearly and I see it so beautifully. And it makes sense to me why C.S. Lewis would be the most thoroughly converted man that Walter Hooper had ever met because even his imagination was changed. The clarity with which God's peace had come into every part of him, he used to bless us. So I'm inspired when I read Narnia. I'm inspired when I read good fiction, when I see fiction that helps me see these things and want these things. And they don't just become beautiful, but they become desirable. But then I realized after about 20 minutes, I can't keep this up on my own. Like that was a really good high. And I, but I got to go read Narnia again because I forgot what that feels like. And Paul knows that the Thessalonians cannot do this on their own. The Thessalonians cannot make themselves holy. Paul knows this, which is why he starts with this beautiful vision of how God's going to make them completely holy. And he talks about the peace of God and their holiness. But then he moves on to the power of God and their holiness. So if you're with me up to this point, you may have the same question I had, which is this. When Paul prays that God would make us holy and keep us blameless at the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, does he mean that God will change us in an instant when Jesus comes back? Or does he mean that he will work in us now so that we will be holy when Jesus comes back? See what I'm saying? Is the main emphasis on the future holiness or is the main emphasis on how that future holiness is gonna make me more holy now? I think the answer is he's talking about both. Now, of course, that's true theologically, right? I mean, the Bible speaks about God will make us holy, and therefore, in a sense, that sure holiness means it's already happened because our faith in Jesus brings us into the family. But the Bible also talks a lot about our uh, one degree of glory to another, our growth in holiness. But it's not just true theologically. I think I can show you where it is in the text. And I can show you in two ways. First, uh, he says God has the power to change us now. And I get this in verse 23. You see at the beginning of 23 in your bulletins, it starts with the word now. The NIV just drops it off. It's not even in there. In the Greek, it's the word but. And for those of you who love big phrases like me, you'll love this. It's called an adversative conjunction. That's what it's called, an adversative conjunction. And the purpose of an adversative conjunction is to put in logical order what a writer just said with what he's about to say. So he's trying to make a connection, and in so doing, he's making a logical order, okay? If you didn't notice, the reason we, I had us read 12 through 22 is because there are 13 commands before he says this, 13 commands. And he ends with this, I love when Paul does this, verse 22, abstain from every form of evil. That's like a junk drawer phrase. It's like, listen, I know I left something out. I know I did. I know y'all are gonna make up new ways to sin. 
So what I'm going to do is open this drawer and say, anything fits in this drawer, just put it in there. Okay? So all these commands plus that. Paul knows uh, you can't do that on your own. And the function of this adversative conjunction is to say, listen, I've been urging you to do certain things, 13 of them most recently. But it is only in God's strength that you can do them. You see, he's, he's making logical connection between their sureness of their future holiness is the only thing that will empower them to live a holy life now. It's the only thing that can give them power and that God expects them to be changed now. If that's not enough for you, up on the screen, I'm gonna have two verses, okay? Look at this. The first one is from 1 Thessalonians 3. It says, now may our God and Father himself and the Lord Jesus direct our way to you. And may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all, as we do for you, so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all the saints. Doesn't it look really, really familiar and sound really, really familiar and even use the same words as our passage? Look in 12 again. May the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another. 13, so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness. Remember the word heart is everything, all of you. So what Paul has clearly already told them is listen, this future holiness, this future sureness that you have, I expect you to increase now. In chapter five, verse 10, he says, whether you are alive or asleep in the Lord, you live with him now. There's this real reality to where what we know will be true about us impacts our life now. If you saw it yesterday in our psalm, in CBR, Psalm 26, this is what the whole psalm was about. David talks about, well, if you don't understand this, it kind of looks like he's boasting in his own self-righteousness. He's saying, I am full of integrity. I am full of integrity. I am uh, full of joy. I am walking in a faithful way. But in 26.3, he says it so clearly. He says, for your steadfast love is before my eyes and I walk in your faithfulness. You see, it's the sureness of his future holiness, the sureness of what God will do for him that gives him the foundation to grow in holiness now. But it's not just to, to change us now. God also has the power to keep us then. Look at this. Verse 23, back in our text. May your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless. Kept. This is a very, very powerful word. Kept. It's a strong word. Think about this. Who has the power to keep you? In Jesus' high priestly prayer, he says, I'm going out of the world, Father. I pray that you would keep them in your name, to protect them, to hold them, to keep them. I'm, I'm a young guy, okay? I'm a young guy, so I, I don't tend to think about all of the reality, all, I should say it this way, all of the things that I have not experienced yet, all of the potential not potential necessarily good, but all of the potential extraordinary trials that I may encounter in my life. 
I don't know about those. I don't know about all the extraordinary temptations that I will come up against. I don't know what will happen to me. And I'm sure that most of us or all of us are close to or know someone who suffers from some type of illness or accident to where their mind just no longer can grasp their faith. I'm seeing it with my grandfather right now. He's in later stages of Alzheimer's and dementia, and he is a believer. And even before I was a believer, I remember going to vacation Bible school with him at his church. And now as an adult, I've become a Christian, and now I see my grandfather, who can't, we can't even let him walk in the neighborhood anymore because he doesn't even know where he might end up or where he's going. And I think, what will be my surety? What will be my confidence if that is me? Will it be me? Will it be my own faith? Will it be my own smartness? Will it be my own ability? No, it will be the power of God to keep me. It will be the power of God to keep you in those moments where you are in so much pain, when you can't even call on him, you're so confused. It is in those moments that God will keep us. For the Thessalonians, Paul's saying, listen, when Jesus comes back, it's not about your perfection. It's about the fact that God is and will keep you. He has you. So Paul starts by telling them the reason God will make them entirely holy is because God is the God of peace who brings flourishing to everything. He then says, you can't do this on your own, but God has the power to change you now and to keep you then. And then, lastly, he reminds them of God's pursuit in their holiness. He says this in verse 24, he who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. The word call is is a word of initiating. It's a word where we always respond. You see, every growth in holiness, all my growth in holiness, all your growth in holiness, no matter how slow it is, is out of a response to the Lord calling you. Out of a response of the Lord coming to you, initiating to you. But it's not just him from afar yelling and calling. Look in this in verse 23, it says, now God himself will sanctify you. Four times in Thessalonians, Paul says, God is your father and you are his children. You see, holiness and God's calling on our life is a very intimate thing. It's God pursuing us himself. He doesn't send someone else. He doesn't send the angels to call us. He sends his son An angel can't die for us. God can die for us. It's God who comes to us. It's God himself who comes to us. It's God himself who calls you. It's God himself who calls me. No one cares about your holiness more than God does. And this is why. God longs to be in relationship with you. God longs to know every part of you, even those parts of you where you're you're convinced that if someone knew that about you, you could no longer be loved. He wants that part of you, and he wants to make that part holy. He wants to make all of us holy. And that's why he cares about making us holy, is because he wants to be with us. He wants to make us flourish inside and out, every part of us. To be holy is to be like God. And to be like God is to be complete and whole. 
And to be complete and whole is to have peace or shalom. This is your future. This is my future. This will happen. God will do this. God is doing this. God has been doing this. And you will be kept blameless. That word blameless is that on that day, the Thessalonians are so scared that something will come up that will disqualify them. But the word blameless means no official transgression can be brought against you. No official complaint. If anyone would try, Paul is saying, to bring up a complaint on that day when the Lord Jesus comes back, they would be laughed at. They would be mocked. That's what he says in Galatians. Jesus has made a mockery of every claim against us. He's paid for it. He's killed it on the cross. That's what it means that we will be made blameless. And on that day, there will be no room for accusations. And this amazing truth extends to now. There will be no accusation against you now. Your life is secure today, tomorrow, forever. Sure, we'll experience striving and struggling and fumbling and failing and falling, but because the God of peace himself is powerfully pursuing your holiness, you will be like him. Let's pray. Father, these truths are real, but they don't always feel real. In fact, sometimes they feel too good to be true because we, we know the remnants of sin that we experience. We know desires we have, we truly have, but we truly at the same time don't want to have. We know things that we do and say that we don't truly want to say, but we say them anyway and we regret them and so therefore we turn away from them. There are things that we've turned away from over and over and over we still seem to struggle with them. I pray now that whatever that thing is that most makes us doubt your love for us, that you would kill it. That you would apply this benediction that Paul prayed for the Thessalonians and that is ours, that you would apply that to our hearts and to our conscience right now. And that we would walk out of here feeling a sense of freedom and joy and that holiness would no longer become a list to us, but it would strike our imagination for the type of life you're calling us to, the type of freedom that you've made possible for us. Meet us now in response in Jesus' name.